Well, I want to ask this morning as we go to the word of the Lord in Nehemiah, the ninth chapter, and if you have your scripture with you, which I hope you do, I hope you'll turn there with me to Nehemiah 9. But I have to ask a little bit of an apology, a forgiveness from you, because my voice is a little bit scratchy. Uh, we went to Winter Jam yesterday with six, uh, well, five adults, one senior citizen who put earplugs in his ear, and uh, uh, with, with four children, and uh, we sang at the top of our lungs to Red and the David Crowder band, and as great as that was, uh, it is so good always to be in the house of the Lord and sing uh, together as, as a church family here. It was shortly after uh, the Dallas Theological Seminary was founded down in Texas in 1924 that the school ran into trouble financially, and they were right on the edge of bankruptcy. Its creditors had banded together, and they had said that on a certain day, they were going to foreclose at noon. And the morning of that, that day, the founders of the school met in the president's office to pray, God, please provide, or we're not going to be here tomorrow. In the meeting was a well-known preacher from Chicago by the name of Harry Ironside, and when it came his turn to pray, uh, you may have heard the story, he prayed in his characteristically refreshing manner, Lord, we know that the cattle on a thousand hills are thine. Please sell some of them and send us the money. And while they were praying, a Texas cattleman came into the business office and said, I just sold two car loads, two, two box loads of cattle in Fort Worth, and I've been trying to make a business deal go through, and, and I just can't get it to work. And I feel that God is leading me to give this money to the seminary. And I don't know if you need it or not, but here's a check. Now, the secretary that day, she took the check and she knew the situation. She went to the door where the prayer meeting was being held and she kind of timidly knocked on the door. And Harry Ironside uh, came and, 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 or excuse me, um, one of the, the men came to the door by the name of Schaefer and he took the check out of her hand. He saw it was for the exact amount of the school's debt. And when he looked at the signature line, he noticed it was a cattle rancher and he said to Dr. Ironside, Harry, God sold the cattle. <laughs> that school is still in existence some 96 years later. And it, and it has seen hundreds of effective ministers and missionaries and church planners that have come through the school, all for the kingdom of God. And it was all because those leaders took prayer seriously. Friends, when we think about our 2020 vision for the next year, I can think of nothing more important than to have the foundation of prayer as a congregation, as a church. It's more than just a brief time in worship on Sunday morning. Friends, it is an atmosphere. It, it is certainly the foundation of what we do as believers for our Lord. John Newton, the former slave trader that wrote Amazing Grace, became a devoted follower of Jesus Christ, and he said, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. And then John Newton added this, Although my memory is fading, I remember two things clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. And all God's people said, Amen. How clearly that establishes our need for Christ. You know, the sinfulness that is in each of our lives, the need for salvation, it's exactly what the Israelites ex experienced within themselves when they returned 
to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. In, ne- in Nehemiah chapter 9, this Jewish family, this Jewish nation had been for 70 years in slavery, first in Babylonia and then in Persia under Cyrus and under the Medes. And now they return to find their temple and the city that they loved destroyed. But now they've come and they've rebuilt their city wall. And when I say they returned to Israel, you need to know that most of them that were coming were coming for the first time. Even though there was a generation of those who would remember what everything looked like in the former glory of this great city of Jerusalem, many were a newer generation of people born in captivity. And as they're working, they find the book of the law of the Lord, and they have Ezra, the priest and scribe, read it aloud to them, and and their hearts, they're cut to the quick as they hear God's law. In chapter 8, that we just read a, a little piece of last week, it describes their sorrow from having strayed from God and sinned against Him, but now they're determined. It's time to go home. It's time to get back to God's ways. And in Nehemiah chapter 9, I want you to see what happens here in verses 1 through 3. Read with me if you would. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of the Israelite descendants separated themselves from all the foreigners and they stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were, and they read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. And they spent another quarter of the day in confession, and another quarter of the day worshiping the Lord, their God. Isn't that great to see the devotion they had and how long they spent? First, we have to hear the word of the Lord for a quarter of the day. Then we have to confess our sins for a quarter of the day. And then, because of the freedom, because of the the salvation, the forgiveness that we have from our God, then we have to worship. And then finally, we rest for a quarter of the day. You know, can you imagine what it would be like if we did that on a regular basis? This nation is trying to reconnect with God. And renewal and revival, friends, they don't come from simply building a wall with fresh stones and fresh mortar. Revival and renewal will never come from a fresh coat of paint or fresh carpet. It will come when we have a right relationship with God. The question is, do you have one? Do you have a relationship with God? And is it a right relationship James chapter 5, verse 16 says, The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And while none of us are are truly righteous on our own, even though we may act holier than thou at times, we are not. And it's not because, friends, God doesn't love us. It's because he chooses to make the first move and offer the sacrifice through the blood of his son that any of us would ever be made right with God. And these Israelites know it's only in choosing God. It's only in choosing a life of integrity, a life that is wound up and tied together with a heavenly creator that they will ever find life and success as God's people. And any prayer, friends, any prayer for renewal or revival at all, these Israelites know that in listening to God's word, 
that Ancestry.com proves that God has been there for them again and again. And through the power of prayer, they find that they, they have befriended God when before all they'd done was forfeit the relationship. And friends, until you put that relationship as number one, nothing will change. Not for your life or your family, not for your work, and, and not for us as a congregation. A thief can't pray, Lord, please don't let the, the police catch me because the thief is in the wrong. Someone who fudges their tax return can't pray, Lord, please don't let me be audited this April because they're in the wrong. A lazy person can't pray, Lord, please help me with my financial needs. A nation can't say, bless us, Lord, when we continue along a path against his commands. And these Israelites know what we must acknowledge. We need to get right with God. You remember the story just a few uh, weeks ago, really, that John Chestnut told about Bowersville, Ohio's most famous resident, uh, Norman Vincent Peale. How when he was a little boy down in Bowersville, he found a, a big old black cigar and he took it out behind the barn and just lit it up to see what it was like to smoke. And he heard his dad coming. And so he put it out and held it behind his back and his dad hitched up the team of horses to go to town. And, and of course, as a young man, dad, dad, can I go with you to town? And his father said, son, never make a bold request while whole, harboring a smoldering disobedience behind your back. What are we holding behind our backs from God? The psalmist said in Psalm 66, 18, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So beginning in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 5, what you will see there, and we're going to look at several scriptures throughout it. We're not going to read the whole thing. But from verse 5 through 37, you'll find eight Levites, eight worship leaders standing on some stairs that will lead God's people in a corporate prayer. In fact, it is the longest prayer recorded in the Bible. It's a prayer of confession, a prayer of repentance that recounts what God has done for them and men's failure to honor God with obedience. And I, and I think it is an awesome prayer. It, and we would do well as individuals this week to just read and reread and pray so many parts of that prayer. But it's a recounting of their disobedience and rebellion and the need to confess. It was a realization of how far they had drifted from God and an honest confession of their sin. And SCC, it is the first step in every spiritual time of renewal or revival. And this is there on your outlines this morning. Every spiritual renewal, every spiritual revival begins with the realization that we have drifted from God and desire to get back. For God to bless us, you got to have the want to. you got to have the desire. And if you don't have that, then that becomes your first prayer. Lord, make me care. Make me aware of where my relationship from you has drifted to. The old preacher Vance Havner used to say, real revival, it doesn't begin with joyous singing. It begins with conviction and repentance on the path and part of Christians and how true he was. It makes renewal possible. Confession makes revival possible. And true change and renewal only happens when three things take place. And the very first thing is we have to listen to the voice of God. 
We have to listen to the voice of God in Scripture. We have to listen to the voice of God through His Holy Spirit. As we sang the song, it mentioned Christ in us. I love what Isaiah said in Isaiah 50, verse 4. He said, the, Lord, the sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue. And, and I love this, this portion. To know the word that sustains the weary. I love you guys as a congregation. But as I talk to so many of you, I realize how weary, how worn, how bullied by Satan how bullied by this world and the lies that your peers shout at you. And then I see the scripture that it's God's word that could sustain, that could ignite the fire under the path of the weary. He wakens me morning by morning. And I always think about God's mercies being new every day. He wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. And friends, I can't get a better point than the very voice of God on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus shone like lightning and he spoke to his disciples and it says in Matthew 17, 5 that while Jesus was speaking, a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Real confession, real life begins with the choice to listen to God. But then there is a time for prayer and worshiping Him. Worshiping Him. I love Romans 12, 1, where it tells us that, that our reasonable act of spiritual worship is simply to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to God and not conforming to the cookie-cutter mold of this world any longer, not just simply getting up, going to work, going home, going to bed, getting up again and going through the same old routine, ignominiously minded to all the things that are going on. But it, it means taking the time to see the one who made the heavens, to see the one who created all and to take the moment to either fall on your face or your knees or to stand with your hands lifted high in a field and celebrate and worship the one who made you. And the closer you come to God as you seek to worship him, the more you see yourself in the light of his grace and in the light of his truth. And then that leads to the third thing, which is, is change. And I realize that, that nobody thinks of change as a good word unless you're trying to lose weight or lower your cholesterol, right? Then it's a good thing to change or growing hair. Those things would all be good too. Jeremiah 7, 4 says, do not, or, do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord. Temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways, really change your actions and deal with each other justly, if you don't oppose the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and you do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then, God said to Israel, I'll let you live in this place. I'll let you live in the land that I gave your ancestors forever and ever. You say, Bill, that's Old Testament. What, what about me? James chapter 4, verse 8. Come near to God, and God will come near to you. 
Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your mourning to laughter, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And what will God do? I'm sorry, what will He do? He'll lift you up. What do you think He'll do for a church that does those things? He'll lift up that congregation, that church that brings him honor by following those steps, by acknowledging our wrongs, by acknowledging God's ways and acting on it. The first step to confession is to admit there's a need to change. They saw it in chapter 8, all through that chapter, and they mourned and they wept, and we see it in their corporate prayer too. Look back in Nehemiah chapter 9 with me if you would, and I want to look at verse 16. Look at this. Verse 16, but they, our ancestors, they became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen, and they failed to remember the miracles that you performed among them. They became stiff-necked, and in their rebellion, they appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. Skip down to verse 18. Even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God that brought you out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. Skip down to verse 26. They were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets, the ones who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. And so you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. Skip down to verse 28. As soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. And therefore you abandon them to the hand of their enemies that be ruled over. Verse 29, they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands again and again. They acknowledged the sins of their fathers. But then it gets to, to them. All the way down in verse 33, and all that has happened to us, God, you remained righteous. You acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. God, it's not just mom and dad and grandma and grandpa that need to repent, that need to confess their sins. It's us. 34. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, our ancestors didn't follow your law. They didn't pay attention to your commands or the statutes that you warned them to keep. Verse 36. And see, we are slaves today Slaves in the land that you gave our ancestors so they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. But because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. And we are in great distress. You see, distress is the natural result of a life that does not confess its sins before a holy God. The question I have is why live in a land of darkness? Why live in a land of loss? Why live in a life of distress any longer when God has so much more planned? When we have a Savior that says, I came to give you life, and not only that, but to give you life to the full. Why live with a thief who only comes to steal and kill and destroy and keep us in distress? When we have a God that shares with us the bounty of an eternal table, 
Well, let's move on together. James Montgomery Boyce said, there can be no genuine forward moral progress for a nation or an individual without acknowledging or sorrow for and the true turning from our sin. Here's the second thing on your outline. Spiritual renewal or revival, it's only produced by repentance. And I realize that's a, that's a churchy word as these others are, but repentance convicted by the Holy Spirit. My job is not to make anybody feel guilty, and that is so freeing as a preacher. My job is not to stand before you and, and tell you to turn or burn, to be sanctified or to be French fried. That's not my job. But the Holy Spirit is the one that convicts us of our sin. And then it's expressed through our confession. Romans 2.4, for those of you that have been in our Wednesday night studies in Romans, either a Bob with Bob or with myself, you're, you're going to recognize this penetrating question from Romans 2.4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, his forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Above all the things that, that I could say to you, friends, I hope you catch this today, that confession, confession is what makes us real with God. If we lack the ability or we lack taking the time to confess, we're just putting up a mask. We're not putting up a real relationship before God. You know, one of my favorite stories, and I just have a little clip of it here, uh, that we shared with the girls. And we had a lot of favorite ones that, that we shared with the kids. In fact, we saved them in a box for grandkids one day. Uh, and yet, one of them that I've always loved is the story of the Velveteen Rabbit. You guys remember the story? It's the story of a rabbit that, that wants to become real and uh, is, is seeking that. And Skin Horse is another toy in the playroom that he's speaking with. And Skin Horse says to the Velveteen Rabbit, real isn't how you're made. It's not a thing that happens to you uh, without a child. Because when a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt, the rabbit asked? Sometimes, said the skin horse, because he was always truthful. When you're real, though, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up or, 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 or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said skin horse. You become. It takes time. That's why it doesn't happen to people who break easily or people who have sharp edges or have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time that you're real, most of your hair has been loved off, and your eyes drop out, and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all, because once you're real, you can't be ugly, except to people who don't understand. Even though we look at ourselves sometimes through the wrong lens, or we have friends and classmates and family that look at us and they call us ugly. Or they want to put us to the side. Friends, once you know how much God loves you, and once you come to Him and confess to Him your brokenness, once you confess to Him your sin, you can never be ugly again because He loves you that much. Confession makes us real. Being honest with God makes us authentic. 
And it does make us authentic towards other people as well. Some of the most sincere people I know, in fact, the most sincere people I know in this world are Christians. Well, the next thing is that confession frees us from the burden of shame. I wish we had time in a worship service to have testimonies because so many of you would stand and talk about a time in your life when it felt like you were carrying just a, a, a backpack of rocks everywhere you went from the morning time you woke up in the morning until the time you went to bed at night and you slept on the rocks too because you woke up not having gotten good sleep. And that burden of shame and guilt over something that happened to you in your past, maybe something someone did to you or with you, you brought that and you dropped it at the foot of the cross and you know what I'm talking about. When you confess all those things before Christ, he takes away the weight. The next thing is confession, and we've talked about this already, but it takes God's word seriously. Confession takes God's word seriously. Proverbs 19.6 says, Whoever keeps commandments keeps their life. It's only with a deep conviction that the word of God is the word of God that we can be blessed. God's word, reading it, having it become part of our life, leads us to confession just like the Israelites. When for a quarter of the day they heard the scriptures read from the Torah, those first five books of the Bible, and they couldn't hear it without moving to a time of confession, and, and neither can we. You can't grieve unless you know what grieves the heart of God. You cannot celebrate in your faith until you know what elates the heart of God and what brings joy to the heart of God. And Scripture is the benchmark. It's the mirror that we stand before to see ourselves. James chapter 1, verse 22 says, Don't merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. And we live in a culture of self-deception and self-lies. It says, do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but doesn't do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror. And after looking at himself, he goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Friends, the only reason you would ever do that is because you don't like what you see, but you choose to live with it anyway. When you see yourself as the scriptures portray you, you realize how much you need the transformation, the change that only God can bring. And in this prayer of confession, what you'll find as you read through the, this ninth chapter are these Levites directing the people's thoughts to the, the goodness and, and the grace of God again and again throughout their history. You'll find them saying things there in the ninth chapter like this. Blessed be your glorious name, and can it be exalted above all the heavens with praise. You alone are God. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You remind them again and again that we have a wonderful and mighty king and a mighty God. And then the, one of the last things is this. Confession, it leads to a changed life. Confession leads to a changed life. We know who we are and where we want to go and what we want to become. 
And our pardon today is not based on the merit of our, our worthiness. It's based upon God's goodness and grace. And these Israelites will end their prayer in the ninth chapter in verse 38 saying, in view of all this, God, we're making a binding agreement. We're putting it in writing. And our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. In other words, we will not break this vow. We're going to covenant with you, God, to do these things. And we'll read some of them next week, but very simply in the 10th chapter, they're going to say, God, we're, we're going to join together as Israelites. We're going to bind ourselves with an oath and a curse that we're going to follow the law of the Lord that was given through Moses, the servant of God. We're going to obey it carefully. We're not going to depart from it to the left or the right. Everything you said, God, we're going to follow. In verse 30 of chapter 10, they're going to say, God, we will honor you as a family with our family life. In verse 31, they say, we're going to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, going all the way back to, to the Ten Commandments. In verse 32 to 35, they're going to say, God, we're going to intentionally worship you with sacrifices that, that mean something. Whether it's serving in the temple, whether it's giving an offering, we're going to do it all intentionally. And in verse 39, they say, God, we promise we will not neglect the house of the Lord our God. And eventually, God's blessings start to flow. You know, I, I've been watching an old show. I don't Anybody here remember the old show Survivor Man that was on the Discovery Channel? Uh, may, maybe you've watched like I do. Uh, there's a corporal's corner that I watch on YouTube. It's this guy that goes out in these extreme wilderness conditions. And he, he teaches you how with just a tarp to make a, a shelter or a hammock and stuff. And I watch these guys in sub-zero temperatures. You know, how do you start a fire when you don't have matches? How do you start a fire? And, and how do you stay warm and, and survive? Charles Spurgeon wrote this. In the days of flint and steel and brimstone matches, we had to strike again and again, sometimes dozens of times, before we could get a spark to the tender. And we were thankful enough if we succeeded at last. Shall we not be as persevering and as hopeful in heavenly things? We have more certainty of success in this business than we had in our first with flint and steel because we've got God's promises at our back. So never let us despair. God's time for mercy will come. Ask in faith, not wavering. But never cease from petitioning because the king delays to reply. Strike the steel again and again. Make the sparks fly. Have your tinder ready and you'll get a light before long. The Israelites knew in their prayer of confession in their mourning, that if they struck the steel long enough, that God who is faithful, that this God who was the same yesterday, today, and forever, would bring back the fire of revival and renewal in their lives. I believe that for us. That's one reason I've had communion moved to this time of our worship. I move it now because communion is a time of repentance. It's a time of confession. 1 Corinthians 11 is a passage that we'll often read in portion 
during communion time. And David Stickney's going to come and do a meditation in just a moment. The praise team's going to lead us in a song to focus at the table. But 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight says, A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks the cup. Because anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. You see, nothing will really transpire if all we do is eat the bread and drink the drink. Renewal comes when we admit our sin before God, when we acknowledge his gift and his command, and then we act on it. We see him transforming our lives, even in this simple act at the table. Examine yourself. David prayed in Psalm 139, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and, and see if there are any anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. You ask the Holy Spirit to take the roadblocks, the hindrances out of your way before you take communion. Tell him what you did wrong. Tell him what your heart has focused on. Is there someone or something that you love more than him? Is there a struggle that you're holding on to in your life that's distracting you from this table? Is God's word a concern to you, really? Can you really worship him? Or is something taking the place of God in your life? Tell him the attitudes you have that you know are not good. Attitudes of pride and of arrogance, jealousy, lust, unwillingness to forgive, laziness. Ask Jesus to minister his cleansing in this moment and he will heal your spirit. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and he'll forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we love your word. We love the fact that you care enough for us that you didn't leave us to wander a lonely existence in this life apart from your guidance, from your counsel and your care. You loved us enough that you sent your one and only son to die for our sins, to pay the price. And if we would believe in him, if we would come and bow before you admitting our need admitting our sinfulness, confessing your name, we would never perish, but have everlasting life. And this table, Lord, it represents every piece of that, from the first moment to the first gift to the last. It's all about you. And so, Father, as we take this, and as we think about our relationship with you, Father, if there's anyone in this room that needs to get right with you, guide him by your Holy Spirit to that moment. As a folk, as a congregation, lead us all to that moment because we want to see revival in this place and it doesn't come apart from repentance and confession. It doesn't come apart from your Holy Spirit. It will not come apart from prayer. So we offer ourselves to you now and we remember in Jesus' name.
The Lord's Supper is the most important part of every worship service. It deserves our special attention and special planning. The same passage of scripture is used over and over for the communion meditation. As you well know, the passage is 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 32. Sometimes only one or two of these verses are used, but usually an entire passage. The passage is indeed central to having the Lord's Supper in the worship service for several reasons. First, it connects what Christ did in the upper room to the actual application of his request amongst Christians. Second, it warns against abuse of the memorial. Three, it shows the importance of observing the Lord's Supper since the information was given to the Apostle Paul by special revelation. Four, it points out the value of observing it as a witness for Christ. Five, it gives us the correct attitude to have as we participate. And I shall read the entire passage. For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whoever, eat, whoever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under a judgment. Then we are judged by the Lord. We are being discipled so that we will not be condemned with the world. Excuse the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for being with us in each of our lives. This is the time to where we can come examine ourselves. This is the time to where we can come and ask for forgiveness of the sins and the wrongdoings that we have had. And this also is a time that we recognize you as being the Lord and Savior of each of our lives. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.